1 Samuel 16, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling and said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice and he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice when they came he looked on Eliab and said and thought surely the Lord's anointed is before him but the Lord said to Samuel do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him for the Lord sees not as a man sees Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now, this is speaking of David. It says, now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. I want you to capture that phrase. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. The series that we're going to be in on the life of David I've entitled it From That Day Forward, from this pivotal moment in the story of young David who was probably not yet a teenager in this passage. He was likely somewhere between 10, maybe 13 years old when God started to powerfully move in his life. And from this anointing moment with Samuel, the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon David and for the rest of David's days, he would be known eventually by many, all of us who read the Bible, as that man who was after God's own heart. Now, hold on a second. Didn't David commit some grievous sins? Was he not an adulterer? Was he not, at certain, in certain senses, a womanizer? Was he not a bloodthirsty Bronze Age warrior? Did he not have a hot temper 
that at times led him to dramatic bloodshed outside of the context of war? How can a guy who was so, at times, not in control of his passions, how can we dare say that he's a man after God's own heart? Well, let me tell you what you're going to have to do. And by the way, let me recommend this book. Uh, I just read it last week. I read it in two days. It's Mark Rutland's book. Mark Rutland's book on King David called David the Great. Read it. Read it. I am not even going to try to pretend that that book didn't influence me. And the whole tenor of Mark Rutland's book called David the Great, the context is this. We cannot look at David through a modern Christian Western lens or we will make the mistake of struggling with how God himself could call David a man after my own heart. We have to trust the word of God. And by the way, I think it's really great news that a guy who is as flawed as David, that God can declare after him, yeah, that's my boy. That boy's got a heart for me. That boy's got a heart like mine. So while David was not sinless, David was not impeccably holy, but the tenor of David's life is he yearned and longed and hungered for God. And when David was confronted with righteousness, David would eventually align with righteousness. And so when I look at David's life, I'm going to say this and then we're going to get into the text. When I look at David's life, here's what I want to do. I want to say, God, I'm going to acknowledge before you that I and everybody that knows me understands I'm not perfect. Lord, I'm going to keep short accounts with you when I fail you. If I ever give into my flesh to the degree that David gave into his, Lord, I'm still going to retain the possibility that your look of love might rest on me every day and that somehow, even in the midst of my brokenness, fallenness, and my intermittent sin, somehow I'm just going to believe that what you decree over me and others in grace is the true standing that we have with you. And so for anybody else that might be grieved, you know, I, I, you know what the worst sin in the world is? The worst sin in the world to me is mine, my own sin. I am not as grieved by your sin as I am by mine. And so it takes a complete confidence in this amazing, gracious, eternal God having set his affection on you and on me to be able to say, Lord, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for your courts above. That's the story of King David. So his story begins in 1 Samuel 16 with some verses about another man. Uh, a man named Samuel. A man who was elderly by the time we find him in 1 Samuel 16. He is the last judge of Israel. Samuel is the individual that the, the hinge of the Old Testament kind of swings on. The people move from having God as their king and human judges to demanding that, that Samuel, the last judge, would bring to them from their own people a fit specimen who could be their human king. And so Samuel is old, he's at the end of his ministry, and one of the last things he does is to anoint David this one who would be the king of Israel. And so let's begin there in this message called Man's Afterthought and God's Anointed. And let's start very simply. And these verses are going to be up on the screen. So I want us to get into the story. This is more narration and, and, and speaking than it is didactic teaching. And I, I want you to get the pulse of what, what David's life, how David's life begins. And it begins in the context of a season of distress for Samuel. 
That's the first three verses. If we had had time to read the other chapters, we'd see why Samuel was distressed. But let me say, let me just read these three verses. The Lord said to Samuel, so God is speaking to Samuel, and here's the conversation starter. Samuel, how long will you grieve over King Saul? I have rejected him from being the king of Israel. Fill your horn, Samuel. It would have been a ram's horn. Fill your horn with oil and go. I'm sending you to Jesse, who lives in Bethlehem. I have provided for myself a king from among Jesse's sons. So Samuel, old Samuel, begins to get nervous, and he says, how can I go? If Saul hears this, he's going to kill me. And the Lord does what he often does when we ask questions of faithlessness. He doesn't answer the question. He just reinforces what he's going to do. He says, take a heifer with you. In other words, you're going. Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you will do and you will anoint for me whom I declare to you. Now, very quickly, Samuel had been living in heartbreaking circumstances for several years. And here's the reason why. Samuel had relationship with King Saul. Samuel was many years before, probably at least two and a half decades before, he was the judge who had anointed Saul the first king over Israel. And Saul did have promise at the beginning. And so Samuel anointed him, Israel had their first king, and Samuel was just trusting God in the midst of saying, I know Israel has stepped out of the will of God by rejecting God as their king and having a human king, but I'm going to trust that Saul will lead Israel in the right way. Well, those illusions were shattered pretty quickly because Saul proved almost from the get-go to be a really an unfit leader. He was insecure, he was erratic, he would, it would eventually become plagued by demons that got into his life through Saul's rebellion. But let me tell you the reason, the primary reason that Saul was a terrible, unfit leader. And it's, it's mentioned several times about him. He feared the people that he was called to lead. He was so insecure that he couldn't do the will of God because he was addicted to the approval of people. And so that is primarily why God rejected Saul from being the king. And the rejection had happened chapters earlier. In chapter number 13, Saul had gotten impatient and had offered a sacrifice when he was told to wait on Samuel. And that was the first time that Saul learned, okay, your rebellion and your disobedience is like witchcraft. This is not going to fly. Your kingdom is going to be taken from you. And, and the message was literally this. It's going to be given to a neighbor of yours that's better than you. And so Saul had learned, and Saul, you know what Saul's response to that was? And there was another occasion in chapter number 15 where he had incomplete obedience by not killing all of the enemy, and he let some of them live because he feared what the people would say. And so finally, God just communicated through Samuel, I'm done with Saul, I've rejected him. And Samuel actually had to bear that message. As a matter of fact, let me just read these verses. I think these will be up on the screen. And this was like his gut-wrenching duty. Samuel had to go to Saul and tell him, God has removed you. God has taken your authority. He's taken your leadership anointing. You are a lame duck king. And it looked like this in 1 Samuel 15, verses 28 and 35. This is what Samuel had to say. The Lord has torn the king of Israel from you, Saul, this day and he's given it to a neighbor of yours who's better than you and then the footnote later on is this Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death but Samuel watch this Samuel grieved over Saul 
And then it goes on to say that the Lord regretted that he had made Saul the king. So I want you to know that Samuel, as a man who did his best for the Lord, Samuel himself was flawed, but he felt hope and love for Saul, but he watched somebody he poured his life into turn from the Lord. Some of you in the room have had that happen. You've poured your life into either a child, a grandchild, or a friend, or a, somebody you were discipling, and you gave them your best, and they ran well for a while. And then they took their hands off, and something happened, and they spurned the very God that you had been pointing them to. And there's very few heartbreaks like that than to recognize, oh, their potential is gone. They've made up their mind. They've stepped out on God. They've stepped away from the truth. And Samuel had to go through that through uh, um, many years just watching Saul fumble one after another. And so he's grieved, he's hurting, he's hating this. And so when, when, when we open up 1 Samuel chapter 16, that's why the Lord says to Samuel, hey, how long are you going to sit there and feel sorry for Saul? See, sometimes God's tender and compassionate and kind and sweet, and he'll just stroke your hair and love you and blow you butterfly kisses and all that. And sometimes he'll just get square right up in your face and say, hey, big boy, big girl, the kingdom goes on. I'm sorry you're hurting right now, but I am not done with your life yet. I want you to continue to walk through uh, your life with me, press through the pain, press through the loss, press through the discouragement. I'm not done with you yet. You need to stay with me. And that's what he did with Samuel. So he had a big boy conversation with Samuel. And when you get down to verses 1 through 3, we see that through his heartbreaking circumstances, through those gut-wrenching duties of confronting Saul, who, by the way, could have killed Samuel if he had wanted to. He didn't, but he could have. And the Lord says, hey, it's not all bad news because I've got some eye-opening opportunities for you. What's he talking about? He says, go fill your horn with oil and go. I'm sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I've provided for myself a king from among his sons. I will show you what you shall do, and you will anoint for me him whom I declare to you. So I like this because the Lord is giving us a principle here through the life and his conversation with Samuel. When a man of God fails, when a leader fails, when a woman of God fails, when a believer fails, when a human being fails and they disappoint us and they betray our trust or they let us down or they prove themselves to be fully human, when a man of God fails, nothing of God himself fails. And it is one of the tactics of the enemy to get us so focused on the human leader that when the human leader proves that she is human or he is human by failing, by sinning, by doing those things that fall short of the glory of God. It is the tactic of the enemy, the bait of Satan, to get our hearts embittered towards that human, and if they represented God to a great extent, to get us doubting God, to get us bitter with God, to get us self-consumed with how God may have let us down by letting this human let us down, and it's a common tactic of Satan. Why do you think when there's scandals in the kingdom that we see these churches just implode because they, instead of looking to the leader for leadership, they were looking to the leader in worship. And so effectively, when a human leader falls, for a lot of people, if they don't have their eyes on the Lord, it, it, it impacts their spiritual life uh, more than it should. But the Lord said this. He says, hey, uh, I'm not done with Israel, Samuel. And Samuel, I'm not done with you. 
I've been looking for a replacement for Saul, and I found him. He's one of Jesse's boys. So go get that horn, and I want you to operate in the office of a prophet. Fill it with oil, because I'm about to send you with an anointing for somebody that's going to change the course of the history of the nation of Israel. And so I love the fact that in the midst of our disappointments, our heartbreaks, especially if somebody is wounded, betrayed, or disappointed to us, whatever that might look like, if we'll listen to the Lord, the Lord will be saying this, hey, you know I'm not done yet. You know I've still got a lot of great stuff going on in the kingdom. Don't shrink my kingdom down to the size of your current problem. I want you to know I've got more work for you to do. I've got something else to show you. Some of you are in that season, by the way. You've come out of a painful season. You've come out of a season of disappointment, disillusionment, maybe even heartbreak. And you're, you're, you're actually in the beginning of a reset season. And I'm just going to be bold with you. I don't have anybody in mind. I can't possibly know what all's going on in your lives. But I do want to be bold with you and say, why don't you just harness the wind coming behind your back right now? And if the Lord is determining this is a reset season, go ahead and hear kind of the vibe of what he said to Samuel. Let him speak it over you. Hey, fill your horn with oil get up get going get moving i've got something else for you and just say amen yes lord and start walking in that so now it's good for us to be able to say amen hallelujah but you got to put shoe leather on your amens you got to walk out that amen and so what god has told samuel to do is not just feel better about the situation he says Samuel come on we're, we're going to Bethlehem we've got some stuff to do so now Samuel's at a place where he's got to make a decision in his heartbreak in his loss in his grieving over Saul is he going to get past that enough just to obey the Lord just obey one of the things you'll see in this message is the, and really through this whole series is the amazing work that God will do if we will just simply obey him. And, and by the way, there will be many times in your Christian journey, you don't feel motivated to obey. You're not feeling the wind at your back. You're feeling this again, same old, same old mundane cycles. I've got to do this again. It didn't work the last 100 times, but here we go again. And the answer is, yeah, we always get to obey. And I'm going to tell you, obedience always, eventually, brings breakthrough. And we're going to see that right here. So here's the occasion for obedience for Samuel. He's been given an assignment. And I, want, I just want us to learn from this and, and make it about how do we pursue God's will for us in any given season. Well, verses 4 and 5, look at the diligence. Look at the diligence that Samuel shows as he's pursuing God's will. So Samuel did what the Lord commanded. He wins right there. God said, do this. Samuel said, I'm going to do this. And he began to do it. So he comes to Bethlehem. And I like this, it's a little comical because the elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? And he said, yeah, peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. That doesn't mean a lot to us because we're not living in the Bronze Age. And, but Bethlehem was not like Metro Atlanta. When we read city, we're thinking, you know, Metro Atlanta, you know, pick a city, any of the big cities around Atlanta. 
Not that at all. It would have been primarily one road moving through a territory with houses that are along that road and farmland. It's an agrarian culture, a lot of farming, a lot of shepherding, livestock, very rural. And it would have been one road. And so when they're talking a city, we don't know exactly how many inhabitants would have been there, but um, Winder would have made Bethlehem look big and sophisticated. And so here comes Samuel. He is the spiritual slash religious leader and the civic leader of all of God's people. And by the way, not too terribly long before this visit to Bethlehem, Samuel actually hacked a few people to pieces with a sword. And he was told to do that by God. And if you don't like that, just talk to God about it tonight. I'm not here to defend the Lord. I'm here to preach the Bible. And Samuel had to destroy some of the enemies of God. So when a guy's got a reputation of hacking people to pieces, when he shows up in your hometown unannounced, you're going to get a little squirmy. And so the elders of the city are coming out saying, hey, is this a good news visit or a bad news visit? And of course, Samuel is, is there on an assignment from the Lord that didn't involve retribution. It, it involved opening some doors in the kingdom. And so he comes in, he says, actually, I'm here unannounced because we're going to consecrate Bethlehem and all of the elders unto the Lord. Now, we don't know everything that that means, but let's just make it as, as, as simple as we can. As the spiritual leader, he moves into a city and he says to all the elders, I want all of the leading men of the city to get together. We're going to consecrate ourselves under our God and we're going to worship him and we're going to sacrifice unto him. And it's not like, a now I got a two o'clock meeting. I can't be there, Sam. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not going to be able to attend. No, it's everybody showing up. And then there's a, a footnote here that's very interesting. It says that um, he tells them all, consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. But then it later says, but Samuel consecrated Jesse and his sons. So he enters into somewhat of a, an uh, overseeing whatever they did to consecrate. It could have been prayer. It could have been ritual washings. It could have been an anointing with oil that he had. We don't know exactly what it is, but everybody knew it was official business. Well, why is that important? Well, hold on, and I'll show you in just a, mo a moment. The key that I want to seize in on this one is this. Samuel's being diligent to obey God in everything. He's not being casual. He's not being flippant. He's not just kind of shrugging, saying, well, I'm sure this is good enough. He's doing everything that he has been told to do. I, I just I want to throw this out there, and, and you know, I'd like to give those of us that are older a free pass, but just in case, I, I want to remind us, we never outgrow obedience as children of God. And we're going to see at the end of the chapter, well, the end of the passage that we read, David has been living an obedient life under the Lord all through his younger years, up right to the brink of adolescence. And the result of David's obedience and consecration under the Lord is that the Spirit of God rushed on him and stayed with him to that day forward. The very next verse, which I didn't read, you can read it later, says the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. The Spirit of the Lord rushes upon David, one verse later, and the Spirit of the Lord departs from Saul and an evil spirit comes on Saul. What's the difference between this young David and this King Saul? One was obedient and reverent towards the Lord. The other was disobedient and self-willed. The one that was obedient received an anointing 
and we're still talking about him with great renown today. The other one makes us hang our head and say what wasted potential, and Saul's life ended tragically, never fulfilling his purpose. Why am I saying that? Because we're living in a generation, friends, young and old in the room, where obedience to some ears sounds like legalism. Don't talk to me about how I live. Don't talk to me about my morals. Don't talk to me about my behavior. I'm, 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 I'm graduated from that legalistic religious stuff. Let me just be bold. Um, I'm going to tell you, obedience is not legalistic and obedience is not empty religion. Obedience means that we actually care about maintaining fellowship with the Lord and we recognize that our lives are a reflection of his name and his glory and we obey him not because we are afraid of him but because we love him. And so when we're thinking of obedience in this, Samuel was obedient, David was obedient, Saul not so much. And they're two completely different stories. And so let's go a little bit further because, again, Samuel's pursuing God's will. He's being diligent and obedient, but look how difficult it is. And this is going to encourage some of you right here. So Samuel's committed. I want to do the will of the Lord. I'm standing in Jesse's house. Jesse's here. His sons are here. Look at verse number six. It'll be up on the screen. So when they came, Samuel looks on Eliab or Eliab. He's the oldest son of Jesse. And Samuel says, surely the Lord's anointed is right here. But the Lord said, Samuel, do not look on his appearance. Eliab was a a tall guy. Don't look on the height of his stature because I've rejected him. And then we have a kingdom key here. This is a kingdom key that we must have intertwined in our own soul. The Lord does not see as humans see. Humans look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. We're pretty familiar with that principle. Not everybody, if you cornered them, could say, yeah, it was in the context of Samuel anointing David, but that's exactly where this kingdom key is found. So here's the scene. Samuel's standing there. It's, it's a very official scene, probably very intense. Samuel's like a very intense guy in Israel. Jesse has this unannounced visitor, and Jesse's been summoned to get all of his sons. So you've got seven of the boys standing there, and Samuel only has history to work off of because the last king of Israel, the current king, Saul, the Bible describes him as tall, dark, and handsome. Heads and shoulders, I mean, he was... Brad Pitt and Robert Redford if you're a little bit older and Cary Grant if you're really old all rolled into one and Saul was like the man very impressive so Samuel goes in he goes I gotta find a Saul 2.0 and Eliab looks the part because Eliab's the oldest he's the firstborn he's good looking he's tall and so he's like yeah Samuel, the prophet, is saying, this has got to be it. God's will is easy. Thank you, Lord. I showed up. I obeyed. Here it is. God's will right in front of me. Good. Let's anoint him, and I'm going to go back home. Not so much. God says, Samuel, that's not him. Samuel, don't be impressed with what you see on the outside. Samuel, don't be swayed by the shell because I'm looking for the substance. Samuel, You need to, and I'm amplifying here, obviously, Samuel, you need to realize that it's the carnal nature of human beings to be impressed with what they see outwardly 
Samuel, I'm nothing like that. I've been scouring the land for somebody with a heart like mine. And Samuel, Eliab's not him. So immediately Samuel has to think, okay, well, hallelujah, I see the other six candidates standing here. It's got to be one of these guys. So he goes on a little bit further and he dedicates himself. Okay, well, this isn't God's will. I'm going to press in a little bit further. So verse 8, so Jesse, Papa, calls Abinadab, son number two made him pass before Samuel. Samuel hears from the Lord and then repeats it. The Lord has not chosen him either. Then Jesse makes son number three, Shammah, pass by. And Samuel declares over Shammah, neither has the Lord chosen this one. So let's just stop here for a minute. Here's the prophet of God, the believer, wanting to obey, wanting to do the will of the Lord, wanting to know what the will of the Lord is. All he knows is to wait, to pray, to listen for discernment, to wait on God, to bring revelation to what's happening. And so it's not number one, it's not number two, it's not number three. If I'm Samuel, by the time number four gets there, I'm like, please, Lord, please, 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 please. We only got a few candidates left. And four, five, six, and seven, God says, nope, 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 nope. Seven shut doors. I know none of y'all have ever been there. I know none of y'all have ever been waiting on the Lord, and, and the open door comes. Do you, did, did, if y'all were Christians when you were looking for a mate, I think about that all the time. It's like single Christians, and you're looking for a mate. And back in the day, our church was real small when I was single, and I was saved and in that church for three years before I met Amy. And the Baptist church hated having a single preacher boy. And so their grandmas and aunts and moms were always trying to fix me up with somebody. And there were times when I was seeking the will of the Lord and I'd be like, maybe this is the one, maybe this is the one. And it was just shut door after shut door after shut door. And I finally got to the place where I literally told the Lord, I was like, I have no idea what you want from me. I am knocking on doors. I'm trying to climb through windows. I'm doing whatever. Lord, I'm, I'm done. I literally told the Lord, I'm done. Why? Because I'm seeking the will of the Lord, but I don't know the will of the Lord. It's not something that there's a verse that says, Jeff, you're going to marry Amy. And so you're just, what are you doing? You're faith processing. You're pursuing the will of the Lord. And I just want to encourage you. If you're, if you're meeting shut doors, you're by far not the first person and you will not be the last. It's a stretching of your faith. Because here's the beauty of it. The Lord is actually much more interested in you getting to know him beautifully than he is in you putting in your dollar bill of prayer, pulling the lever and getting your, your treat his God, of God's will. And so if he's making you wait, it's an invitation into intimacy. He's making Samuel wait here. And so ultimately, they run out of doors God said, anoint one of Jesse's son. One of them is my guy. And all the sons are standing there, at least as far as Samuel can tell, and he's done everything right, and now it's not closed doors. There's no doors left. Some of you may be in that moment right now. Some of you may be in the moment where you have, in your mind, exhausted every resource. You don't see how God's going to come through. You don't know when he's going to come through. You felt like he should have come through the other day, the other month, the other year, and here you are, and you're like, I, I guess I missed it. In weaker moments, you know, I know we'd never say this, but we wrestle emotions sometimes. Well, yeah, God missed it on this one. I mean, obviously he's, yeah. And I know we'd never say that because we're far too religiously trained not to be irreverent, but sometimes we act like we think that. 
Thank you. <laughs> Kenyatta's with me on this one. Like, That's right, preacher. Um, for the rest of y'all that have never experienced it, just accept it as a potential theory. But he's still dedicating it. And this is what I love about Samuel because here's where the breakthrough comes. Seven closed doors. Everything in his senses is saying, well, something's wrong here. He, notice what else he doesn't do. He doesn't go back and say, run those boys back through me another time. Maybe I missed it. Maybe I, maybe I didn't hear the Lord right, because we do that too, by the way. Y'all better get real with me in here. Y'all are acting like, Jeff, we don't have any of these struggles. Okay, well, then I'll just confess my struggles to you, and you can watch. Sometimes when we've, in our minds, where we think we've exhausted every option and we didn't see it, what do we do? We go, but we circle back. We circle back and say, well, maybe I missed it. And sometimes it's because we're being sincere, maybe, we, but sometimes it's just we're impatient. And we don't want to have to start phase two of this thing. Lord, this is what I put before you. In Jesus' name, you're going to pick one of these things. These are the doors I'm willing to beat on. You're going to open one, right? <laughs> Am I making you nervous? Okay. But that's just the way we operate sometimes. Now, we never say it like that. Because we, again, we've been trained in, in Christianized techniques. But that, Samuel doesn't do that. He doesn't go back and say, bring Abinadab back in here. I think my first impulse was probably the right impulse. I, I may have heard the Lord wrong. So look at what he does. So go down to the last few verses. Here comes the voice of revelation. And by the way, it's worth waiting for. The voice of God's revelation when you're seeking his will, is worth waiting for. No substitute will ever do. So Samuel, verse 11. Samuel's not doubting God. Samuel's not doubting Samuel. Samuel's doubting Jesse. Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And Jesse, shuffling his feet, putting his hands in his tunic pockets. Um, yeah, there is one more, but behold, that just means, hey, check it out, dude. He's the youngest. Here's my litter. He's the runt. And actually, he's, he's working today. He's out keeping the sheep, which in that day would have been low man on the totem pole job. You know, we think of shepherds through a biblical context. The Lord is my shepherd. We hallmark channel it all up and everything, and that's, that's not what it was in that day. Um, sheep do things that are unpleasant. And when it's your job to watch them, you have to deal with all the unpleasantness, so it goes to the youngest kid. And Samuel says to Jesse, well, go and get him. He says this, we won't be sitting down till he comes here. What does that mean? Well, it means, remember, they had a sacrifice, and part of the sacrifice is you offer some of it from, you offer, remember, he bought a heifer. Samuel showed up with the grub. He brings barbecue with him. And you offer some of it up to the Lord, but then you get to eat the rest of it. And so you got seven grown boys and their daddy there, and they've done all of the consecration. They've done, they're doing this little religious thing with Samuel right now that they don't understand. And Samuel says, hey, I'm not done yet. Nobody's eating a thing until we fully explore what the will of the Lord is here. So go get the runt out of the sheepfold. 
And so uh, this is where David's going to get introduced uh, to us. Before I move on to that, because we'll finish up here shortly, I hope that you are still leaving room when there's nothing you can see that says God's about to do something. When there is no tangible, measurable, sensory evidence that God's at work and about to do something. I hope that you remember this with me. God reserves the right to constantly be doing stuff that he doesn't tell you about. We are so prone to entitlement and, hey, you owe it to me to go full disclosure. God owes nobody anything. He's a good father. And sometimes his good fatherhood is sovereignly displayed by withholding information that you don't need to know. And why does he do that? Because the just don't live by explanations, syllabus, uh, ironclad written guarantees written in detail. That's not how we live. What do the just live by? Faith. We live by trust. The just trust. And so when he's saying here to Samuel, it's not this one, it's not this one, times seven, Samuel doesn't give up. Samuel has nothing visible in front of him, but he knows God's not a liar. He knows he's heard the Lord. And so tenaciously, he, he looks at the variable whose name is Jesse, and he says, where's that other boy? He says, do you have another son? Yeah, he's out there working the sheep. Go get him, and we ain't going to do anything until he's in here. So that's the context that the afterthought named David meets his anointing. So let's go there. David was this unseen candidate, and he's going to be the unlikely candidate in verse 12. So Jesse sent and brought him in. And here's an interesting description. We've, most of us have heard this before. David was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And let me tell you, because that doesn't sound like a terrible description, ruddy is a little vague. It probably means that David, David was baby-faced and probably light-skinned compared to his Middle Eastern brothers. And when he's coming in from the field, he probably had to run from the field. Picture the scene. Jesse sends either one of his sons or a servant, go down to the field, find David. He's out there somewhere, call his name. So the servant or one of his sons goes down there. David's out there doing his job faithfully, uh, shepherding the sheep. And somebody says, David, you got to get back to the house right now. David's like, hey, look, I can't, man. I'm, I'm honoring my father, Jesse. I'm taking care of the sheep. This is my job. I take it seriously. No, you don't understand. Samuel's in your house. What do you mean, Samuel? Samuel who? Yeah, the Samuel. Samuel the prophet's in your house, and he's calling for you. So David's probably booking it up to the house because you don't keep Samuel waiting. And he's running up there, and by the time he comes in, this fair, frail, preteen, more than likely, is red in the cheeks. He's ruddy, and he's got beautiful eyes, and he's handsome to look at. Let me tell you what this speaks of. It's so funny. We've got a young man in our church, and my wife and my daughter, he's a young dude, my wife and my daughter, once a month, will talk about how handsome this guy is. And I'm cool. I'm, you know, me and Amy are tight. We're married and everything. It's good. And, but when I look at this guy, and he's got pretty delicate features, 
He's, he's a pretty boy, and I don't mean that in anything other than a description. He's a pretty boy. That's what I think of when I read of David. He's not a manly man. He's not like on the brawny paper towels thing in his lumberjack look. He's got delicate features. It's, it's not that he's effeminate, but he's not so masculinized that people would say, a warrior, a king. He's a young man, if that. A boy with delicate features. He's not really on the outward appearance king material. He's just a good-looking kid who ran up to get in the house. So he bolts in. He's got sheep stink all over him. He's dirty from the fields, and he's coming into a highly consecrated setting where his own brothers and dad have been ministered to by Samuel either with water and some kind of washings. My personal belief is the consecration, as it would in many instances, probably involved some of the oil that Samuel had brought with him. The primary purpose of that oil was to do what he's about to do. But there is this consecrated scene, and David comes rushing into it. Now, just very quickly here, um, David doesn't look like what we would picture a mighty king of Israel to look like at this point. But in 1 Samuel 13, verse 14, this would have occurred years before this scene. When God was rejecting Saul, he said, I'm going to find a king, and I'm going to find one who has a heart like mine. That's David's qualification. David's qualification was all about his internal inheritance not his external persona. Let's get this together. Paul would write centuries later, a thousand plus years later, Paul would write this. God doesn't choose many that are wise. God doesn't choose many, I'm paraphrasing here, that are strong. God doesn't choose the eloquent, the mighty, and the noble. God chooses those that are deemed foolish by other human beings. God chooses the weak. God chooses the cast-offs. This is what I love about God's heart. He loves underdogs. And most of us in the room by the world's standards are underdogs. We're either not beautiful enough, not tall enough, <laughs> Not slim enough, not eloquent enough, not educated enough, not wealthy enough. We don't live in the right neighborhoods. We don't drive the right vehicles. We don't wear the right clothes. We don't get our names. We're just not enough in the world's eyes. And God said, hey, you know what? That's actually okay because I don't really regard that stuff. And so in the kingdom, Ted Turner, decades ago, y'all remember Mr. Turner, right? He made this infamous statement that back then was scandalous. Nowadays, people say it all the time. You know what he said? He said, Christianity is a religion for losers. He said that. And I'm going to go ahead and say he's right. He's right. When you're looking through a worldly lens, carrying a cross, denying yourself, and following the Son of God, to the world that looks like that's loserville. 
And to God, it looks like something he will reward forever and ever and ever. King David never would have made the list. He didn't even get invited into the house for the pageant. So what's going to happen with him? Well, we already read what's going to happen, but let's pretend like we don't know. So Samuel brings him in, and as soon as David walks in the house, I love this. The Lord says, arise, anoint him, it's him. Little red, David doesn't even get to say anything. He's, he's coming in, he pulls the curtain back, he steps into the house, he's looking at his dad, he's probably thinking he's in trouble, he's looking at Samuel, trying not to make eye contact, he's looking at his brothers who are probably doing this, you know, just looking at little punk brother David, who they had no regard for, and you'll see that in a couple of chapters. And before anybody can say a word, God speaks, and Samuel gets that revelatory word. Samuel, you've been seeking my will for the last 24 hours. It just walked in the door. Arise, get that oil, pour it out on him. This is the king of Israel. <laughs> I'm probably taking a little bit too much carnal delight in this because, listen, I'm just going to say, raise your hand if you can think of moments in your life where you were the last pick or the perpetual underdog. Raise your hand. Good. Y'all ought to be amening me on this because this is us. This is us. Let me tell you this real quick. I love telling this story because it's just the Lord. I, there's nothing to boast in. So in 2002, when my pastor resigned at Meadow Baptist Church, I was the assistant pastor. I was actually doing way more at that season than he was doing. He was preaching on Sundays and visiting the Greens every week. I mean, he was, that's what he was doing. And so when his time came to an end, they formed a pulpit committee, which I was not on. And I knew God wanted me to be the pastor of the church. But you can't come off. You, you never hijack God and say, by the way, pulpit committee, just want to let you guys know, I know God wants me to be the pastor. Now go about your business. You can't do that. So you, you sit there and you wait. And I'm the guy who got the mail every day. So in the mail every day were resumes and people candidating for the job of pastor. There was probably a total over three months of about 30 of those resumes. And one guy on the pulpit committee who was a Jeff Lyle fan, he said, hey man, put your resume in there. And I'm like, really? He's like, yeah, go ahead and do it. Bottom of the stack. They went through all 30 resumes. And I found this out after the fact. Well, not quite after the fact, but right at the end. My buddy comes, he goes, we don't like any of the other candidates. And I said, great, what's going to happen? He said, they don't like you. <laughs> I'm like, are you kidding me? Let me tell you how I became of what was then Meadow, I became the pastor of what was then Meadow Baptist Church. Nobody else applied for the job. <laughs> After those 30 candidates, it got down between me and some hillbilly redneck dude up in the mountains that pastored a church, I won't call the name of the church, but it was even a hillbilly church name. And they were listening to cassette tapes of him preaching, and he was making racial statements in the pulpit. That was my competition, and they still weren't sure I was the guy. <laughs> underdog, underdog. Why do I bring that up? Because that's the way God operates. 
Some of you are fighting for position. You're fighting for status. You're fighting to get your name out there. You're fighting for the thing that you dream of and the thing that you believe. Stop fighting. Let God flick your opponents, 30 of them at a time. Wait on the moment that he ordains because the underdog, when it gets elevated, becomes the, can I say it this way, the top dog in that circumstance. That's what the Lord will do for you. And in the meantime, you learn this awesome thing called humbling and being humble and dying to yourself. So King David gets in there, and I'm, I'm, I'm out of time, so let me finish this. Arise, anoint him, for this is he. The last pick was God's first pick. And that's going to be the story, a chapter in some of your stories. Just receive that word. That's going to be in some of your stories. You were the last pick, but you're God's first pick, and so none of the other picks stand a chance. But you've got to wait on it. So verse 13, and mercifully we're out of verses. So Samuel takes the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. So here's the scene. Samuel I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lay this out there. You don't have to agree with what I'm about to say because I don't have a verse that ver verifies it, but this is what I believe. I believe Samuel took the oil that was left in the horn, and by the way, that didn't anoint like we anoint. We anoint with our fingertips. <laughs> they were messy anointers. I wish we'd do that, man. I thought about it sometimes. Like, Let's just throw some vinyl down on the floor and let's just get oily, amen. So they would pour that oil out. And so David's standing there in his house in front of all of the brothers of whom God said, no, not him, not him, not him. And they're watching David get the outpouring of the oil. Now, here's the thing. Um, civically, what Samuel is doing is an act of treason against Saul civically he's obeying the lord but he is he is in actuality here's my belief i don't believe that everybody in that room i don't believe anybody other than samuel and i do believe david understood that he was being anointed king of israel i don't think we don't read anything of a pronouncement thou shalt be the king we don't read anywhere where samuel ever told jesse what he was evaluating his sons for there's no mention of that whatsoever. Josephus, who is a Jewish, Jewish historian, has written this. It's not in the Bible, but this was the tradition that found its way through the generations to Josephus' day. The tradition is, is that as Samuel anointed David, he leaned into David and said, you are the next king of Israel. That it was whispered in his ear, then they ate the sacrifice, and the deed was done. Here's why I believe that nobody knew it. Because you, how many of you know nobody keeps a secret for that long? Because it was a long time before David uh, publicly was recognized as the king. I believe it was a secret. I believe David knew it. But here's the thing that I, tell me more, Lord, and he doesn't. What does it mean that the Spirit of the Lord rushed on him from that moment? There was something. I believe David 
was justified before this moment. I believe he had the Lord in him, but this is where he got the Lord on him. And friends, I'm going to give you this and then we're going to dismiss. There's a lot of us in the church, and if you're born again, you have the Lord in you. Don't stop there. You need the Lord on you. There is an anointing from the Lord that makes the difference in who we are and how we live out the rest of our days. I'm going to tell you this. There were many years where I would say, I've got the Holy Spirit. And you know what? Theologically, 100% true. Those, those were prior to any manifestations of the Spirit in my life. If you have not the Spirit of God, you are none of His. Paul writes that to the Romans in chapter 8. If you don't have the Spirit, you aren't saved. So all saved people have the Spirit. You have Him in you. We need Him on us. There's a little Greek word, epi, E-P-I. And it's used in the New Testament when it speaks of the Holy Spirit coming upon people. It's literally coming upon people. That's what we need. That's what this mission base needs. That's what the kingdom of God needs. And the life of David is going to help you get positioned so that your life, literally, I mean this, there can be a moment in your life where the spirit of the living God rushes upon you and from that day forward, you're never the same. That's the story of David. Let's stand to our feet. Oh, I want it, Lord. I want it, I want it, I want it. Hmm. You might be the most anointed person in the room. He's got more oil for you that you know nothing of. I don't know who the most anointed person in the room is. I, I don't think it's me. It's probably some, some of y'all. For the most anointed person in the room, he's got oil that remains that you don't know anything about yet. His horn is not empty. He wants to pour it out. The question is, do you want it? Say, well, I'm, I'm just little old me. David was little old me. He was the littlest and the youngest. He was the one that everybody looked at and said, ain't nothing going to happen with him. How many of you woke up really praying to be like Abinadab today or Shama? No, we don't think about those guys, but we think of David. Why? Spirit of the Lord. So, Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you that you're in us. Help us not to settle there. Come upon us, Holy Spirit. Help us get positioned in consecration, simplicity, and obedience. And come upon us from this day forward. In Jesus' name, amen.